Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and today I am very happy to be joined by my colleague, Amy Ziegert. Amy, as many of you know, is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute, as well as being a professor by courtesy in the political science department and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Um, Amy has spent a career writing about national security and published numerous books on the subject, but we are here today to talk in particular about her newest book, just out from Princeton University Press, Spies, Lies, and and algorithms, the history and future of American intelligence. So, Amy, welcome to the Pacific Century. Misha, thanks so much for having me on. Well, um, let's let's get right into it because there's so much to talk about. The book covers uh, just an enormous amount of territory um, from your vantage point of looking at reform in the intelligence community, looking at how we do intelligence, what it means to do intelligence, and of course the dramatic changes that are happening in the intelligence world through new technologies, through AI, through quantum computing, and the like. But for me, as someone looking at Asia, hovering above all of it or behind all of it is uh, the shadow of China. Um, the FBI director, Chris Ray has on numerous occasions um, stated that the PRC is the biggest espionage threat uh, we face today. Um, is that right? Do you agree with that? And, and if so, why? Absolutely, I agree with that. And Director Ray, as, as you know, came out just this week uh, with a very forceful speech about China, saying that it poses a greater cyber threat than all other nations against the United States combined. So very strong words coming out of the FBI director. He also gave a statistic that the FBI is opening, on average, two counterintelligence investigations related to China a day. So absolutely, China is the biggest espionage threat we face. And you asked why. And I think there are a couple of reasons why. Number one, it's very sophisticated in cyberspace at stealing just about everything. American military officials have said publicly there isn't a weapon system, a major one in China, that hasn't relied on stolen technology. So they're very good at, in cyberspace. Uh, and I think, you know, they're a, a, a rival power. And so they've been beefing up their own intelligence capabilities to deny access to American intelligence in China and to exploit access uh, to our free society here uh, to gather information. You have, you have some great sections in the book, by the way, on that counterintelligence challenge. And I'm going to get to that a little bit later, but I want to stay at the, the, the sort of meta level for, for a little bit. And, and again, given the fact that you've looked at the intelligence community for a long time now, um, do you think that we did not take China seriously as an espionage threat until recently? And if so, uh, why? Um, you have a, a great section in the book, by the way, uh, that looked at the ways in which we, we underestimated what China would do. And this is back in the Korean War in the 1950s, if we pushed up to the Yalu River and, and the, the thought processes that went into that. Um, but this, that what caught my attention was this idea of underestimation. So to start with, have we not taken China seriously and have we underestimated it in the espionage and intelligence realm? It's a great question. And I think we've underestimated China in every realm. So when I think back, and you know this better than I do, when I think back of US foreign policy since 1949, since the PRC came into power, almost every major theory or major policy towards China has been wrong. 
So we thought originally in the 50s that China and the Soviet Union were one and the same, that there was a monolithic communist threat. We didn't understand the Sino-Soviet split. We thought in the 1950s, economists thought that African countries would get rich before China would because they had resource wealth. That turned out to be wrong too. And then fast forward and you look at the responsible stakeholder approach across many presidential administrations. The idea was as China gets rich, it will become more responsible in the international order and it will become more democratic. And that hasn't happened either. So we've been wrong almost every time with respect to China, and we've underestimated China almost every at almost every juncture. So it's not just intelligence. I think it's true in the policy world as well. I mean, it's interesting when you when you think about it. Uh, and by the way, there's a, a great chapter. I think it's chapter three uh, that talks about how popular images of espionage have warped and shaped at the same time our understanding of intelligence. And yet, of course, for many Americans, it's at least sort of their gateway drug into even thinking about, about yeah. the issue. Um, but if you if you think about it, so we, we still have uh, stories and movies about the KGB. Um, we have it about Nazi intelligence. Um, we even have it about uh, uh, Japanese intelligence. Um, but we have almost nothing that talks about Chinese intelligence. So again, uh, the, the point about as, as bad as popular culture is, it, it, it can also at least raise awareness. And we don't, we don't have that with China. So I, I'm wondering, is there anything as, as you look at the, the way that the IC approaches looking at the world that might account for what seems to be less of an initial focus? Is that because at the at the decision-making level uh, and, and above, you know, at the presidential level, it was don't take it as, as a priority? Were there other focuses and, and it just seemed that we didn't have to look at it? I mean, only in 2021, uh, last year, did the CIA stand up the China Mission Center. So from your perspective of looking at how the how the IC organizes itself, have we just been late to the party in thinking about China? I think we have been late to the party, and I think there's some understandable reasons why we are. Not to excuse them, but I think there are systematic reasons why we're late to the party. If you look at you know what has been our number one priority since the uh, since the 9/11 attacks, it's been the global war on terrorism. And so the good news and the bad news is intelligence got much much better after 9/11. Much tighter integration between intelligence and military when it comes to counterterrorism strikes. And we saw that playing out again this week mm -hmm. with the um, with the with the killing of the ISIS leader. Right. So really a lot of improvement on the counterterrorism front. But what that did is it sucked the oxygen out of the room and it sucked resources away from dealing with great power competition. And so that's one of the reasons why I think we're behind the curve when it comes to China. But there's an overlay here. It's not just China. It's what's driving the China threat, and that's technology. So the intelligence community is slow to adapt to the rise of all sorts of technologies, including AI and, and, and internet connectivity and, and commercial satellites that are changing the threat landscape. They're changing who can spy and how they do it. They're changing analysis of intelligence. They're transforming every aspect of the intelligence sort of battleground, including in cyberspace. And we've been very slow in the intelligence community to adapt to those technological drivers as well. So let me let me come back to that. It's an, a, a huge point, obviously a big part of the book. So let me let me come back to that in a second. But I want to uh, actually draw on more of your historical um, uh, assessment uh, and look 
at the way we dealt with um, intelligence activities and, and, and gathering uh, and counterintelligence in the Cold War vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union versus how we seem to be beginning to do it against uh, against the, um, uh, the Chinese. Um, at one level, how would you just rate how well we're doing? You know, everything, obviously, there's a certain level when we have to go into the classified side and, and you can't talk about things, but um, how well how well are we doing, right? Compared to the Cold War when we had enormous amounts of resources dedicated to it, how do you assess how well we are in terms of dealing with this Chinese espionage threat? Boy, I wish I could give you a good uh, systematic grade as an answer to that excellent question. It's hard for me to know. I can just see what's been publicly reported, right? I can't see the successes, which my friends in the inside the intelligence community tell me often, you only talk about our failures because their successes are often classified. But based on what we can see from the outside, it looks like we're really struggling with respect to China and intelligence today. And again, I think that gets back to technology. So it's been publicly reported that almost all of our assets on the ground in China were blown in the past 10 years. They were, and by blown, I mean executed or imprisoned. I mean, this is serious business. And the question is, why? And there are different theories, and some believe that there was a mole or, or maybe more than one inside U.S. intelligence, and one person has been charged. But increasingly, evidence suggests that there was a technological mm -hmm. failure, that our communication system that's supposed to be classified and protected between intelligence officers and new recruits on the ground in China that that was penetrated and that that system was supposed to be firewalled from the normal system of communicating with uh, Chinese assets on the ground, and that didn't work. So the firewall got breached. And as a result of this technological weakness, right, in this communication system, we lost our eyes and ears and insight in human intelligence on the ground in China. I have not heard anything close to that kind of story playing out with respect to, say, Russia. Right. So we, what we, again, get just sort of inferring from public reports, uh, we know in the, based on uh, news reports that we had a human intelligence source high in the Kremlin that could provide that uh, intelligence about the 2016 election interference campaign being directly directed by Putin himself. Right. So and we see this also playing out with Ukraine. Good intelligence coming out about what Vladimir Putin is up to, uh, the pretext of invasion that he was plotting before. I don't see that level of fidelity of intelligence coming out with respect to what China's up to. So when you talk to people in the IC, as you do regularly, um, do you get a sense or, or do they tell you um, th about how they are grading themselves? How confident are they that they they have the information that they need, obviously, to make product that passes on to policymakers. Do they feel they're struggling? Obviously, you're, you're talking about an outside, our outside assessment of a struggle. Um, do they feel they're struggling? Do they do they talk to you about the gaps that they feel they have, or simply the the lower level of knowledge compared to what you just talked about vis-a-vis -vis the Russians? So we haven't had those conversations. That gets into protection of sources and methods pretty quickly, which is classified territory. So I don't ask and they won't answer. Uh, but what we have talked about uh, in my interviews with intelligence folks 
is a growing concern about that this is an adapt or film moment for the intelligence community. So I, I wrote, I, I co-authored an article that which really got the book rolling uh, in foreign affairs with the former uh, acting director and deputy director of CIA named Michael Morell. He's a veteran intelligence analyst, uh, just an incredible public servant. And we wrote in that article that this technological moment is, fun, is foundational and that our intelligence community has to have radical change in how it assesses technology, right? What's the threat landscape with technology, how it uses technology, and how it thinks about American technology as a source of strength or a source of vulnerability. That lots of, of wide ranging changes need to happen. So there's a real awareness inside the intelligence community that they're behind the eight ball when it comes to uh, harnessing technology to understand the threat landscape. And you were on a, um, a CSIS, that Center for Strategic and International Studies Task Force on Intelligence and Technology. Uh, and, and on that uh, was the Avril Haines, who's the current DNI, um, other senior officials of the past and actually those who are currently involved. What were the conclusions from your task force? What did you decide again? And this is not about we need more Mandarin speakers, right? It's it's not about we need more. Uh, well, maybe it was we need more satellites, but but it was about technology. So what, which which many of us don't get, we get the you know we get the spy who came in from the cold at the at the Berlin Wall. Tell us about the technology side of what we face, and specifically, as you pointed out, where China is so advanced in that. Yeah, so that task force was a, a really great endeavor, and we spent a long time getting briefings from folks in the private sector, sort of at the cutting edge, not just talking to folks inside the government. And the way I would sum up sort of what we learned is that U.S. intelligence is facing what I call the five moors. So, you know, we've talked about China and Russia and, and lists of threats, but those the threat landscape and the challenges for intelligence are driven by technology and the convergence of a whole host of technologies. And, and what does that mean? So five moors. Number one, more threats. So the threat landscape in the Cold War was the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, right? Now the threat landscape in cyberspace uh, is much more complex, so more threats. The second more driven by technology that's really a challenge for intelligence, more speed. So decision makers have to make decisions much faster now because of technology. And the intelligence community is still moving at the speed of bureaucracy, not the speed of networks, right? So Twitter moves a lot faster than the intelligence community does, so more speed. The third more, more data, and that's where AI really comes in. Intelligence analysts are drowning in data. You know, drones capture, I'll get the exact figure wrong, but on the order of magnitude of an entire NFL football season of games every day in every drone. And there just isn't enough time for human analysts to assess and exploit all that data coming in. AI algorithms are actually really good at processing data and pattern recognition, and they can do it at superhuman speeds. So more data, huge problem for intelligence where they really need to adopt AI tools and other new technologies. Fourth more, uh, more customers who need intelligence, who don't have security clearances. So think about voters that now need intelligence about foreign election interference or tech leaders that need intelligence about cyber threats that are confronting them on their systems. And then the fifth more, and this is the perhaps the most profound one, more competition. So now anybody with a cell phone or an internet connection 
can collect and analyze intelligence. And so governments are losing their edge. And the United States isn't the same kind of, doesn't have the same kind of dominant place in espionage and intelligence collection analysis that it used to. Now anybody can do it. And people are outside of the government. Well, and I think if, if I remember, I, I didn't look up the year, but I think it was off of a Google Earth picture, you know, a satellite picture that came in from Google Earth that we first learned about a, an entirely new class of Chinese ballistic missile submarine that was about a decade ago. And people, to your point, started saying, well, why didn't why didn't our folks, meaning the IC, know about this? Why did we have to find out on some, you know, cyber geeks webpage that the Chinese had a new ballistic missile submarine? So you spend a lot of time in the book talking about this question of open sources. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that and a little bit more uh, about the challenges on both ends? So from the Chinese perspective, one of the reasons they've been so successful is we have a very open society and they're able to come in and get enormous amounts of information. But to your point, that's facilitated by the technology, right? It's one thing to read newspapers. It's one thing to have petabytes of information that you can that you can absorb and hoover up. So as you look at at this challenge, and again, you know, trying to keep it somewhat focused on the Chinese and, and focused on Asia. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about, about open sources and about what government is or isn't doing to figure out how we protect them as well as private business? And I'm sure you've talked with business. How do we protect information? Can we protect it? And if not, then then what do we do? So I'll I'll talk first about the the sort of China as a target for open source. And mm -hmm. then we can talk about the, how do we protect Please, information. Please, that's great. Yeah. So China as a target, you know, it's good news and bad news, right? That there's this open source world of people uh, that are scouring the internet and commercial satellite imagery looking for things. The good news of it is that, you know, you have people like my colleague Sig Hecker mm -hmm. here at Stanford, who used to have a high level security clearance. He was the director of Los Alamos National Lab. And he's decided he doesn't want a clearance and he wants to do open source intelligence collection and analysis of nuclear threats. Now, why does he not want a clearance? Because what he comes up with, he can share. Right. He can share within government agencies, which is really important, hard to do when it's all in different compartments. And he can share between countries and he can share with the media. So when you're talking about some threats, um, like nuclear threats, that can be a huge advantage. And the classic example of this with respect to China happened over the summer with the discovery of hundreds of Chinese nuclear missile silos. That discovery may have been known by the US intelligence community beforehand, we don't know, but it was made public by non-governmental researchers using open source or publicly available commercial satellite imagery. So a really important example of open source and the benefits of open source intelligence for galvanizing attention. But there are risks. I always say you know, risk rides shotgun with promise, right? So the risk is in this open source community, it's, I call it the Star Wars cantina, right? It's got everybody. You've got hobbyists and activists and journalists and physicists. And whenever you have the sort of Star Wars cantina, you know, quality control is not the same, right? So inside the intelligence community, the benefit of bureaucracy is quality control, standard procedures that vet intelligence before it goes viral. But in this open source world, you can have incredible mistakes that go viral and could have real consequences. And again, the classic example is with respect to China. So one of the examples I use in the book is a, a former Pentagon strategist named Phil Kerber, 
came up with this idea. He wanted his Georgetown class to use open source intelligence to figure out why does China have this massive underground tunnel system? Yeah, I mean, you know, the existence of the tunnel system has been known for a long time, but no one knew what it was for. So his students go on this open source hunt and they conclude that the massive underground tunnel system must be there to hide 3,000 Chinese nuclear weapons. 3,000 is about 10 times larger than any intelligence declassified estimate or international estimate. So this was a shock, right? This is, oh my gosh, China has all these more nuclear weapons than anybody thought. Of course, this report turned out to be dead wrong. And it was debunked immediately. But that didn't stop that erroneous open source report from being a front page story in the Washington Post, from generating a congressional hearing, and from burning up the most precious resource in Washington, which is time. Inside the Pentagon, senior leaders spent a lot of time asking, is this true? Could this be true? What's going on? So imagine the sort of lost time and attention because a bunch of Georgetown students didn't vet what they were doing before they talked to the Washington Post. Well, as a Georgetown alum, I, I, I guess I should defend them, but I'm not going to. But I, <laughs> it could have happened at Stanford, too. Stanford. <laughs> but, but I will tell you, by the way, just to, to your point, I was actually at a, a, um, a private high-level workshop in D.C. with Phil when that was about to come out, and he briefed everyone there. So we were probably this group of 25 or so, were probably among the first to get some of this information that very quickly was then released. And you're right, it galvanized everything. Everybody suddenly said, all the assumptions we had have to be changed, right? And then, and so then that has all of these ripple effects. So that's a, it's a huge point. And and to your point also about the um, the commercial satellite imagery and and the the private sector and the work being done, or or I guess. Yeah, not not public, not government, but you know, public entities like uh, uh, think tanks and the like. One of the only reasons that we had a really good view of what the Chinese were doing in the South China Sea was exactly the same. It it wasn't coming from U.S. government; it was coming from private satellite imagery that showed in real time China building you know these islands and fortifying them. Which, by the way, Xi Jinping is is telling President Obama, "I'm not going to militarize them." And then the next week. The satellite imagery came out and there's a runway and there's a ray dome and there's there's you know everything that you need to defend the islands. So it is it it is very interesting the way that you point out that this is just radically changing assumptions on who has access to information, who needs access to information. Um, can we shift a little bit then to, to, to the flip side, which is how do we protect from our end? So you're you're the target of China, very fascinating and, and ways in which we get it right and wrong. But how about protecting what we need. And here you you talk about um, the intrusions into, uh, obviously, the cyber hacks at OPM, that's Office of Personnel Management, um, of Anthem Insurance, of different American companies, the FireEye reports. Can you talk a little bit about what we've learned and, more importantly, what we haven't done? Well, I think with respect to cyberspace, our doors have been left wide open right, for far too long. So the OPM hack, right, that was a major uh, counterintelligence failure. I got a letter. A major success for the for the Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. So the Chinese were able to steal 22 million personnel records of everybody who's had a security clearance. Um, so that's a big deal. Uh, and, and it turns out, right, those records were so poorly secured 
right, that many parts of the government didn't even have two-factor authentication, right, which is, you know, if you don't have two-factor authentication, you know, you get what you have coming, right, because you're just leaving the keys in the car for the thief to steal it. As someone who got so, one of those OPM letters, by the way, I, I can't agree with you more. And, and Me too. There you go, right? <laughs> and love the section in the book that talked about how could this happen. So but please go ahead. So I think at a baseline, our cyber hygiene is terrible, right? It's 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 not where it should be in the government. It's not where it should be in the private sector. It's starting to get better, but we make it far too easy for adversaries to get in the door. It's one thing if it's a super sophisticated cyber operation, but often they're not. Often it's just because someone left password as their default password. Right? So, so you know, lesson number one: we've got to get our our hygiene game better. Make it make the adversary work to get into our systems. I think lesson number two is who's responsible for protecting .com, right? So when we have an intrusion in our neighborhood and physical space, we call the police, right? If tanks are rolling into the country, we call the military. But it's really not clear still what part of the U.S. government should protect us outside of the government and all the things we do. And as you know, a lot of the China competition is economic. It's very different than the Cold War. In the Cold War, no one bought products from the Soviet Union, right? But this is an economic and a political and an ideological and a military competition. And so this theft of uh, intellectual property from private sector companies is giving China a geopolitical advantage. And yet we still don't know who's really responsible for what. And, you know, the Biden administration is trying to develop better cyber capabilities in the government, but we still have something like 10 times the number of people employed to protect national parks than we do in the Department of Homeland Security to protect our critical cyber infrastructure systems. So we have a long way to go on the organizational front. Let me um, ask you, you know, again, what makes the book, I think, very different is the focus that you have, the expertise that you have on on technology. And, uh, you know, again, so many who write about espionage, it, it, there's drama and there's excitement about, you know, discovering something new and, and the like. But this sort of daily steady state of the way in which, of course, our own lives have changed through technology, what we're doing right here over Zoom, it has these profound effects. And yet, in some ways, we're, we're at the, you know, we're still climbing the mountain of technology. We're not done with technological advances. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you see going forward. And again, when we talk about the pure competitor in these technologies, it is China. It's not other countries. So when we, as we're talking about this, we're really talking in many ways about a U.S.-China tech race. And because in China of civil military fusion, we know that every technology that they develop is going to be applied to military means. So it directly feeds into the, the types of things you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about um, the quantum race uh, and what that may do to communications and SIGINT? Can you talk a little bit about um, how most effectively or, or the types of AI that we need? I mean, AI where, where there's, there's patterns of vision recognition, facial recognition, voice recognition. What's next, though? Where do we get into decision-making and, and things that maybe take humans out of lower levels of the loop? What is it that you see that the Chinese will be doing as well, but that we really need to focus on in terms of the, the next generation of tech in the intelligence sphere? So there's a lot in the AI space, as you allude to, all AI is not created equal. So AI is great for some things and really awful for other things. So AI is really good when you have 
lots of data from the past and the future looks like the past. Mm -hmm. So if I want to map Chinese surface to air missile sites, there's standard operating procedures for how those are built. Chances are how they were built five years ago is probably going to be how they're going to be built five years from now. So if I have a, thousands and thousands of images, I can have an algorithm pour over those images 80 times faster than a human. That's what one experiment found. So AI is great for that, right? And analysts need to harness AI to do those mundane tasks that take a lot of time to free up then the, anal the human analyst to do things that only humans can do well, like assess Xi Jinping's intentions based on all source analysis. So AI is great at that, freeing up the humans to do higher value analytic work. What AI is really bad at is uh, generating insights when the future looks different than the past, right? So when the N is small, so the example I always give is, you know, how do we know whether Iran will develop a bomb? Well, the end, the number of countries that have developed atomic weapons is 10, right? AI is not going to tell you the answer to that question. The N is 10. Oh, and by the way, the only country that's given up its atomic weapons was South Africa, and that's because of domestic politics that the regime didn't want to, when apartheid ended, didn't want uh, the, the next regime to have access to nuclear weapons. So not a generalizable algorithmic kind of conclusion you can draw. So, but when it comes to crisis management, this is where I really worry about AI. So my understanding from the great work of Oriana Mastro is that China is using a lot of technology to replace humans instead of humans. Let the algorithms decide. The U.S. doesn't do that. We want humans in the loop more. So what happens if algorithms are used to help leaders make decisions in times of crisis. We know from history, it's hard enough when humans are against humans, right? You mentioned the Korean War. We miscalculated whether China would enter the Korean War. Now imagine one side has AI helping its decision-making. And so I worry that AI can generate answers that are so far afield from what humans think. And we see this in chess competitions. We see it in AlphaGo competitions where the computer learns and does moves that humans can't fathom. That could lead to escalation and disaster in a crisis. That kind of surprise, not a human move that an algorithm is suggesting a course of action that a human wouldn't think of, that's how this calculation happens. So I think, you know, I don't want to be too doom and gloom, Misha. I think that in that risk of crisis management is an opportunity for agreements about norms with respect to AI. So just like the Cold War, we had mutual assured destruction. We didn't want to blow up the world. There were mutual interests for the Soviets and the Americans to agree on some limitations of our arms. I think there's a possibility to have an agreement on what AI should not be allowed to do because we don't want crises to escalate out of control. That's a fascinating um, idea, and I, and I have heard some talk about it. And of course, one of the problems we face with China is that uh, you know they they have not yet agreed to actually engage in any type of meaningful arms control. Um, they've always said, "Well, we're not at that level. We're a developing country. We we're not at the the." The big level of the the Russians or the Soviets in the U.S. So leave us out of it. But of course, as you point out, they are a leader, and some would say the leader in AI. At least if you go by patents, they are the leader in AI today. More startups, more money being poured in, and so uh, whether then they see that as a competitive advantage 
uh, as our as our colleague and friend HR talks about, uh, HR McMaster talks about competitive advantages that they don't want to give it up, or because they understand it in the way that you're talking about how it changes things, they might be more willing. Is certainly something um, that I think is going to be explored. Another area um, is is quantum, and and you know we're we're both sort of humanist type, you know, scholars were certainly not uh, working at quantum physics level. So I'm a knuckle dragger. No, I'm not, not even going to pretend. But what I have read and heard is that one of the issues of quantum communications is that it essentially is, it, it cannot be decrypted it, it, because of the way that the, the actual physical properties change. And since we get 80% or more of our intelligence from SIGINT, signals intelligence, an enormous amount. Have you looked into that? And what, what do you think about that as, as China, which has already made quantum communications nets and is developing them? Is that something we really have to worry about from an IC perspective of not being able to get information that it's relied on? Yeah, so same caveat for me that you said for yourself, I am by no means a technologist. I'm only related to one. I have one child who's a computer scientist, but I am not. So what I know is really at a basic level from the outside as a political scientist looking in. But what I learned in doing the research for the book, Misha, was you're exactly right. What quantum computing could do is essentially render encryption obsolete and ineffective, which means that all of our communications, including nuclear codes, right, and super, you know, highly classified information could be rendered accessible to an adversary. Now, we're not there yet, but this is, you know, on the horizon of the next decade or two. So there's real concern. And this is where I think, you know, we often talk about the need for public-private partnership, whether it's intelligence or national security more broadly. And this is where the university plays a crucial role too. I think we often don't think enough about that third leg of the stool, the, the role of the university. A lot of these you know, frontier of the frontier technologies are developed first in universities before they go into corporations. And so for the IC looking into the future, there's I think a much uh, greater need for more interaction, more dialogue, more situational awareness with research that's happening inside universities before it gets monetized in the commercial sector. And quantum's a classic example of that. And, and you actually, we should note that you and HR run a, uh, a track 1.5 um, program at Hoover, which is to basically try to link or create better links between Silicon Valley and Washington. And I've been able to participate uh, in that as well. And it, it, it's a fantastic thing, but I think it gets exactly to your point about, you know, and I'm sitting here in DC where clearly people are behind the curve on the, on the tech stuff. And then they, they, you know, they look at national security, they're not technologists and, and very few have been trained that way. You're sitting uh, in Palo Alto and you're, you're in the midst of this technological garden of Eden, so to speak. And how, how much more work do you think we have to do to actually link the two specifically for work in, in the IC, for work to get better information to decision makers, meaning the work that's being done in Silicon Valley and the way that it is, is employed and, and deployed in Washington, D.C.? I think we have a lot more work to do. I'm I'm really glad you're involved in this tech track too. I think it's a really exciting initiative. I'm so pleased to be doing this with HR. Um, 
you know, and, and I liken it to my, my sort of uh, informal title is we want the suits and the hoodies to speak to each other, right? <laughs> so we need to have more bilingual communication. And the reason for this is that it used to be in the Cold War that innovation, as you know, started in the government and then it was commercialized in the private sector. Think about the internet, right? It started in the government, but now it's the opposite. Innovation is largely starting first in the commercial sector, and the government has to figure out how to get it in. That is a very different set of problems. And so what we what I found is when well-meaning folks come from Washington to Silicon Valley, they tend to use D words. This is Pentagon speak. We want to destroy, degrade, defeat. And in Silicon Valley, they like to use C words, right? We want to change. We want to create, right? We want to collaborate. And so there's a real cultural disconnect. Um, and that cultural disconnect has real consequences for our national security. And there are, also, there are also incentives that aren't fully aligned as well. But yes, it's true that a lot of folks in Washington don't understand technology. But it is also true a lot of folks in the technology world do not understand Washington. And they don't understand national security. They don't understand the importance of it, how government works, and how to do business together. Um, and so both sides have to come together. And that's what this Tech Track 2 is, is aiming to do. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a letter in between C and D that could link them together. <laughs> if there were, we might, you know, we might have a way out. But that's that's actually very funny that that you say that dis, uh, you know, disrupt, deter, degrade, destroy. Um, you know, it's to to have someone categorize DC that way. And by the way, it's DC. So um, DC is, <laughs> yes. is actually quite, um, uh, quite funny, quite interesting. So just a few more questions. Um, I, I, I want to end with sort of a big question on where you see the IC going in terms of its own structuring and, 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 and evolution to, to answer some of these questions. So I'm going to leave that for the last one, but let me just return for a second to the, to the counterintelligence question. And um, we are seeing more activity. Uh, it was under the Obama administration, more under the Trump and, and, and under Biden administration on um, things that that many who read your book and, and who listen to you talk about these things will, will find more familiar, i.e., you know, spy versus spy in the Cold War, right? Arresting people, uh, they're acting as agents. Um, of course, we've also had um, the FBI's China initiative and its attempt to look at uh, a lot of scholars uh, who have worked with China, often scholars of Chinese origin. There's been some success, some failure, lots of questions about that uh, as well. As you as you look again from a historical perspective, um, uh, how do you, do you think that our counterintelligence capabilities vis-a-vis -vis China and, and the threat from China, um, are they where they need to be in terms of even understanding the, the nature? Is it that China, unlike a, a Soviet in the 1970s, um, people who want to work for China can be so much better embedded throughout society? I mean, what, how, do we, how do we wrap our heads around the CI question when it comes, counterintelligence question when it comes to China? That's such a, a, a good and vexing question, right? Because we have challenges on both sides. We have people being wrongly accused of being uh, spying for China. We've seen this an overreach with the FBI program. Uh, and it can lead to real uh, anti-Asian American sentiment. It can, it can lead to xenophobia. And we don't want that. We also, you know, don't want to set, to close our doors, I think, to Chinese nationals that want to study in the United States. I want them to come. I would like to hasten the brain drain from Beijing, right? And I would like the best and brightest from China to come 
decide that they would rather live in freedom in the United States than the surveillance state of the Chinese Communist Party, and they become Americans and they stay. So I think we have to be careful about uh, having our counterintelligence programs attack the very people who actually want to come to our side. At the same time, we can't be naive about the fact that the counterintelligence challenge is real and it's pervasive and that China really is sending uh, people to this country, lots of people. Uh, they have a very strategic and long-term approach to embedding people in our society. And, you know, the doors are pretty open for uh, Chinese nationals to come uh, and harm our country. So how do you balance these two things is kind of the critical question. And it strikes me that the Bureau needs to work, we, we gotta get further back in the process. So one part of the solution is when the State Department is granting visas for folks to come to the country, how good is that vetting process? How much do we know about who folks are and what they intend to do? So that we can be a little more thoughtful before people come to the country about what the risks might be. And then much like what we did after 9-11 with really good counterterrorism communications with law enforcement, it's really understanding the communities, the diaspora from China, and working in partnership with them rather than alienating them so that if there's a concern about a counterintelligence penetration, it's the community that brings it forward to law enforcement. Yeah, it's a huge, a huge point. So the last, last substantive question again on this, this idea of of your again, you've you've worked on IC reform, intelligence community reform for a long time. What's it going to look like in fifteen years? Are we going to have a you know a department of technological intelligence? I mean, what, you know, what is it going to be like the you know the Jetsons and and stuff? What 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 is it going to be? be in terms of dealing with this specific issue of technology that you've focused on? I mean, how does it, how does the IC have to restructure itself? Um, in your view, what does it need to do to be most effective uh, across the board, meaning protecting at home, penetration abroad, all of these different types of things that you've covered in the book? So what I'd like to see, and I and people arm wrestle me over this idea, because I, I, I understand there are some who, who, who don't agree with me. What I would like to see is a new intelligence agency that's dedicated exclusively to open source intelligence. And I say that because I think the name of the game in intelligence is insight. And we're going to get much more insight out of openly available data and using new technologies like AI to harness that data than secrets in the future. Secrets still matter, don't get me wrong. But open source intelligence has to play a bigger role. And it will never play a very big role inside agencies that are dedicated to secret intelligence. So it's like the Air Force being part of the army before World War II. Air power didn't get the attention and respect it deserved until it was its own service. But there's another reason why it's so important to have a new dedicated agency for open source, and that's talent. At the end of the day, intelligence is about people, and you need technologists, the best and bright. You need Mandarin speakers too, but you need technologists to want to come and work in the government. And they can do that when they see how exciting it could be uh, working with new tools in unclassified uh, data. And an open source agency doesn't have to be in the beltway. It could be forward deployed to where young people actually want to live right, in places like Austin, Texas, or Silicon Valley. You have to go where the engineering talent of tomorrow wants to be. They're not going to come to you in the same way because they have too many options. So I hope 
15 years from now, we'll be talking from the lobby of an open source intelligence agency, one of many spread across the country, where it's a test bed for harnessing all sorts of new technological analytic tools that, that can be adopted and adapted much more rapidly across all the 18 agencies of the intelligence community. That's a really, that's a really fascinating um, idea and, and vision, and hopefully we'll... Uh, We'll see it, and then we'll, we'll be able to talk about it. Okay, last question. You're not going to like it, but I have to ask. Okay. Your favorite spy movie. What is it? Wait, since, since you wrote an entire chapter on why we shouldn't be paying attention to the spy movies, come on, what do you really like? What is, what is the spy movie that you love? So I will cop to the fact, Misha, that I really do love spy-themed entertainment, but I also have found in my research that spy-themed entertainment is not just entertainment, and it can really and has really influenced public opinion and policymaker views in some very negative ways. So that said, like I'm not too much of a Debbie Downer. I do like James Bond. I like Jason Bourne. I watch The Americans. My favorite movie, if I had to pick one, and the ending is not re very realistic, but it's Argo. Oh, it's the movie yeah. about the covert operation to rescue American hostages that were holed up with the Canadians after the Iranian Revolution. Right. It's a true story. The movie takes some creative license, but it's a remarkable real-world story. And I think that movie does a really good that's job. That's a great, it. yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really... A really good one. Well, this is this has been great. I mean, we could obviously keep going on and, and talking about this. Um, but again, people should know that the book is Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. Uh, again, it, it is one of the few books that really looks at how the intelligence world is impacted by and is influencing uh, the, the technology uh, that we all deal with every day and, and, and making new ways of thinking about it. And as you, as you um, summed up, what you'd love to see is this open source center, which gives everyone hope that, that they can actually be part of, of making a solution to the problems and not causing the problems. So um, Amy Ziegert, uh, my colleague at Hoover, it has been a pleasure having you on the Pacific Century. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Misha, for having me. So for the Pacific Century, I'm Misha Oslin. And we will see you again next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.